0: Buddy and welcome to the Hour podcast or back to the Hour podcast if you are listening in again happy thanksgiving guys and i hope you guys are enjoying some time with your family or at least are resting up over the holidays but i just realized while writing the script that if you're not american uh, this is completely meaningless but anyways i just kind of like this time of the year because it's just a bunch of holidays in one single stretch and today i will be covering an analytical book that studies the global economy by looking for slight differences within nations I have done reviews like this in the past, so if this sounds like something you would like to hear my voice comment on, I highly recommend my second episode on Good Economics for Bad Times by Abjeet Banerjee and Esther Duflo. Funnily enough, today's book also has two also without delay. Here is your review on Why Nations Fail by Darren Asimoglu and James Robinson. Kamer Deren Asamogulu was born in Istanbul to Armenian parents on September 3rd, 1967. His father was a lecturer, professor and principal at many educational institutes around the area such as Istanbul University and Armeyan Unkian. He attended the school where his principal was the teacher and as he grew into adulthood he took an interest in economics. He graduated from York University with a B.A. in Economics and then from London School of Economics with a Masters in Econometrics and Mathematical Economics in 1990 and 1992, respectively. He earned his PhD continuing his studies with LSE and becoming a certified doctor at the age of 25 and the epitome of the coming generation of global economics. This prompted him to be considered a wunderkind by many leading economists such as Arnold Kling. He has become a naturalized US citizen, taught in MIT economics since 1993, married a fellow co-worker in the CS department, and is now residing in Newton, Massachusetts with two kids. James A. Robinson is a British economist and political scientist in 1960. Big coincidence, he also got a BSc from LSE with the same degree, but he obtained his masters from University of Warwick and his PhD from Yale. His research is mainly focused on Latin and sub-Saharan economies, which is mostly where this book also concentrates within. He would then work with his school's Ivy rival in 2004 as Harvard's associate professor of government. He would then move up the corporate ladder with chair positions in political science and economics at, in Harvard he would move to U. Chicago as one of its nine professors for the prestigious Harris School of Public Policy Studies on July of 2015. So basically, both of these very intelligent, influential men have contributed their entire lives to studying economics and political science, specifically the economic diaspora of crumbling third world nations, then taking hundreds of these cases and comparing them to each other to find out why these nations fail in an attempt to find a solution. And this is the exact essence of the book. There are two types of content that is being provided in the book. The first one is more summarizing their research and what they're observing. The second one is formulating possible theories based on the first type of content. These two are interwoven in between different economic cases and situations. But each of these times, there are overlapping topics for both of research and theory content. So let's get started with the topics for the research portion. First is the topic of what conditions are necessary for sustainable economic growth. This book opens this first topic with the most iconic example in all of global economics, the two Nogales of Mexico and America. North of the border, the city Nogales, Arizona is quite advanced compared to the rest of the world. But the same cannot be said of its clone just south in Serona. Sorona has much worse public education, higher crime rates, more corrupt officials, etc. This is not to say Nogales, Arizona is some kind of utopia, but there is a jarring difference between the cities that share so many similarities. They share the same culture, the same ethnical makeup, the same geography, border, and even families are split across the two cities. The only difference is which side of the border they are on, and the institutions that the citizens are subjected to. From their previous PhD research, Johnson and Darren come to recognize that technological progress and only technological progress can lead to sustainable economic growth. Thus, there must be institutions that can protect the conception and growth of private inventions and private property in general. New technologies open new markets and advance broader previous ones. However, Everyone has to have the ability to participate as to not create a monopoly for only one group of people to profit off of. A great example of such a paradoxical national institution is the patent system in America. It protects inventors' property rights for just enough time to entice further inventions, but eventually make it accessible to the public for the entire population to capitalize on. The patent system is what is known as a pluralistic political institution that breeds constant technological improvement and change. But along with these comes the requirement of proper, regulated, centralized power of the government. Next is a topic of different types of complementary yet contradictory institutions. All forms of institutions can be broken down into political institutions that control distribution of power between members in, a, in society and economic institutions that controls the distribution of property. Characteristics for economic institutions can be divided, according to Asimoglu and Robinson, into inclusive and extractive institutions. Inclusive economies are ones that allow and encourage citizens to engage in economic activities for profit. This is not just limited to the elites, and in an ideal scenario, anybody can increase or decrease their social standing substantially by direct correlation to how much they work or how much they engage in economic activities, thus this increases the the national economic growth. We can use the patent example from before as an inclusive economic institution as well as the Commenda system in medieval Italy that essentially gave a foundation for any investor and any traveller to, to partner together and engage in overseas trade. Inclusive political institutions allow all citizens to participate in where and who government power should be allocated to. The broad theory is that what is good for the majority will ultimately be the most politically stable as it benefits the most citizens, even if it means that it is atrocious for the minority. This political stability will ultimately carry over to a stable and solid national market that people can capitalize on and grow. Such examples are virtually all liberal democracies. Then there are extractive economic and political institutions that try to exclude citizens from power or economic activity in order to seep as much labor as possible with no reward. Essentially, the exact opposite of inclusive institutions. This economic exclusivity provides no motivation for citizens to engage with the markets. And if there is some sort of ability to engage with the economic trade, the market is not stable and there is no political inclusivity. Some examples of economic exclusivity are any forced exploited labor, such as the encomienda system, serfdom, caste system or even slavery, while examples of political exclusivity are any sort of tyrannical power such as the fixing of elections, an abusive police force, or a straight-out absolute monarchy. Then the other topic is the analysis of other possible reasons that have been explored and whether Robinson and Asimoglu find these theories valid in the face of their own research. The theory of geographic differences proposed by Jeffrey Sachs and Gerard Diamond state that geography is a major reason for why there are economic inequalities between nations. Most third world countries are near the equator in tropical humid areas and perhaps the climate differences as well as the geographic boundaries impact their economies. There is also the theory of, of culture pioneered by David Lanes and David Fisher that distinct cultural identities are the reason why some nations have cultures predisposed to economic growth while other nations do not, and thus there is a growing inequality between the two. But there are simply too many examples of poor economies outside of tropical, hot, humid areas. For example, there are the East Balkan nations, and there are cities with completely opposite economic situations as opposed to their mother nation. And there are many examples of countries with the exact same ethnic and cultural backgrounds, but with completely differing economies. Apart from Nogales, South and North Korea are perfect examples. So they argue with this data that the true determining factor of how economically successful a nation will be is based on the degrees of inclusivity and the extractivity of its political and economic institutions. But with this research, what theories can Robinson and Asimoglu conclude? First off, there is the theory on what truly drives democracy. They theorize that the unrest of proletariats threaten the power of the elites, and thus they must concede and democratize every so often. But to truly understand what these two mean when they argue this theory, we need to seize the assumptions that they have already made. First, there is a clear divide between a very rich minority and a very poor majority. Government has to be democratic or undemocratic, and there cannot be an in-between, there has to be a binary definition. The poor majority not only care about the redistribution of wealth now, but also in the future. The economic growth of a nation must fluctuate and thus elites can afford a revolution if the economy is in an economic spiral. With these conditions, the authors construct a simulation of how a nation and its society originally began with a fabulously wealthy majority controlling most if not all the power in a nation. Usually the extractive characteristics of this nation will be through taxes employed by this rich ruling class. To combat this lack of inclusivity, the poor will eventually lead a revolution to overthrow this system. However, this means that at the end the instability brought by the revolution if not covered by the political and economic inclusivity will be even more costly to the nation. Worst case scenario, the nation is in even more shambles and the poor revolutionaries yet again become the ruling class. And the cycle continues. However, in order to combat this, the ruling class will have to make political and economic institutions more accessible. This leads to a more thriving economy and the ruling class will get to still keep a majority of their power. Thus Robinson and Ismoglu propose that the true driver of democracy is the economy. This runs counter to the modernization theory of LIPSAT based on the same principles, which rather states that democracy drives economy. Obviously, there are going to be counter arguments to the theories and data presented in why nations fail, but that is the nature of global politics and economics. Human society is so vast, large and nuanced, and so many factors play a part in one nation's economy, more often than not, it's not going to be one magical reason. Each situation is a result of the varying degrees of each factor, and we are still very unsure of what approach to take to combat this. But this does not mean that it's not worth trying. Global economies and inequality is still a major problem in the 21st century, and the more research we conduct, the better, even if it means seemingly complicating the problem. Okay that's all I got for this episode. I hope you enjoy listening to the owl and have a great day.